you were really lucky because in that critical age you had a really good mentor and it wasn't all about buys and tries right <laughs> yeah so he, he i think they uh they basically said that's an that's an afterthought uh yeah you want them but they're like ornaments on a christmas tree so you have to be headstrong enough to push ahead and believe in yourself but at the same time there's going to be roadblocks in your life that you're not going to be able to overcome on uh, you know on your own dr stuart mcgill is in a lot of people's minds and and, and you know as far as I'm concerned that it's the gospel. He's the authority on low back injury and recovery, and he's worked with the who's who in Major League Baseball. Uh, I'm sure he's worked with, with numerous soccer players. He's worked with NBA, NFL. He's worked with top tier powerlifters, Olympic lifters, um, track and field athletes, just everybody. He's the guy when someone has come to a dead end with their back. So I would absolutely advise them to back off. They should see someone that's an expert in whatever it is that's ailing them, whether it be a knee, a shoulder, a back. You need to, you need to read everything that Dr. McGill's ever written if it concerns your back. Eric Cressy's really good with the shoulder. There's experts all over. Seek out the best in their field. Read the material first so you have somewhat of a baseline of understanding of what they're gonna tell you, because most likely you're gonna to need to read their information anyway to, to, to understand the context of what they're suggesting for you. Yeah. And then as the, the lift turns around, the weight gets heavier. So this teaches someone to grind and explode. So what I have people do is work off RPE. It's basically the rate, rate of perceived exertion or effort, but I like to run off a scale of five through 10. So I, 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 I've driven my body to, to great lengths that the average person would never do. So I, I feel like I need more of certain things. I'll tell you a couple, you know, for sure things I wouldn't do. But besides this, it's really open to interpretation within reason. So hello, Brian. Welcome to Brother Science. Uh, it's a pleasure and honor to meet you. Thanks for having me, man. It's an honor. Um, I, I have so many questions to ask because I've um, I've been uh, you know following. I'm not stalking, but I'm following you <laughs> for many years, <laughs> and literally. Um, there are thousands of questions I want to make. Hopefully, you're patient. But before we go through all this, um, let me let people know who Brian Carroll is. Uh, so I, uh, I'm 36 years old. 36 years old. I live in North Florida, United States. I've been powerlifting for about 20 years, and uh, I kind of got the bug while I was in high school. I gravitated from playing baseball and. Uh, I started to really take to the iron quite a bit, and as I got more into strength training and getting big, and you know trying to bench press 350 pounds, my interest in baseball started to fade. So uh, once I graduated high school, I never played baseball again, and really just buried myself into lifting weights. And I had a mentor by the name of Skip Sylvester that got with me uh, in the high school uh, ages of uh, 16 and 17. Mm -hmm. And he had me doing basic compound movements, barbell rows, you know, squats, deadlifts, bench presses, overhead presses. So I had a really good foundation coming out of high school. And, and it, for my age, I, I would like to say I had a high level of training IQ at mm -hmm. that point. Yeah. So that really uh, helped propel me forward into some bodybuilding. And then eventually, as uh, most people know, I, I took to powerlifting and I've been doing it ever since. I did my first bench press meet in 1999. And have been hooked ever since. You were really lucky because in that critical age, you had a really good mentor, and this wasn't all about buys and tries, right? <laughs> yeah. So he, he, I think they, uh, 
they basically said that's an that's an afterthought. Uh, yeah, you want them, but they're like ornaments on a Christmas tree. Exactly. There's something you add add later at the end. It's not the not the the most important part. And they would actually uh, you know bust on me a little bit or, or make fun of me for uh, worrying about doing front raises. They're like, why are you even worried about front raises at 17 years old? Let's do some overhead presses and then finish off with maybe some side raises and some rear delts. But your front raise, the, the overhead press is going to give so much stimulation to your your front delts that you're not going to need to do, do uh, anything else, you know, for, for those. So I had a really good, uh, you know, path, you know, starting right off. So it really just helped streamline my, uh, my path to success, at least uh, in some ways. Why some ways? Yeah, in some ways, because, you know, obviously I loved training, so I would overtrain. You know, I'd want to be in the gym every single day. When I first joined the gym in high school, um, it was a really nice setup, so I was used to training in my garage or in the high school weight room. I would go there two and three times a day just because I didn't have anything else to do. I'd go pump my triceps up. I'd go do some more bench presses. Yeah, it was uh, definitely overkill. So we all know that the type A personality has to be harnessed and, and it has to be properly channeled because that same drive that can make you great or really good at something can also be the thing that pulls you apart and undoes you. And I, obviously... Those that have read about me and know about me know that I suffered a really big injury uh, in my powerlifting career, and uh, I would say that was a result of my type A personality. So remember when we had a chat a couple of weeks ago when uh, when you said about ego, and it's uh, coming from you, especially you know because um, I wanted to ask you about your world class powerlifting records. Okay, um, I think it was. I, your injury was in 2009, but yep. before that, you had a total of uh, 2,751 pounds? Yes, uh, I, I totaled over 2,700 pounds multiple times, and while on an obstacle course, as I was going to be a police officer at the time, I uh, fell. You know, in Florida, it's very humid in the summer, so the, uh, the obstacle that I was trying to hurdle over was a barrier, and it was full of morning dew, so it was very slick. So as I was trying to make an impression on the people at being 275 pounds, I ran full speed and went in a hurdle over it, and I slipped and landed right on my sacrum area where my butt and my back meet, basically. And uh, I got up, and my legs weren't working, and I finished the course. And uh, a couple weeks later, I deadlifted my first 800 in competition and squatted my first 1,100 in competition. So obviously, I knew something was wrong with me, but I was too uh, stubborn and bullheaded to take a couple steps back. Now, the only reason why it really didn't start debilitating me till a few years later is I did take time off between meets. So I'd take just enough time off between meets to heal up a little bit, and then my back would become flared up again uh, as I progressed forward, you know, eventually uh, squatting 1,185 pounds at cool. 275, which was the all-time world record uh, since it's been beat with uh, 1,210, I think. Um, but that was in 2011. So two years after the injury, I was still making, you know, nice progress. Um, but we all know that everything becomes cumulative over time. Exactly. And after a while, uh, pat, uh, bad, bad movement patterns day to day, lifting heavy weight with bad form on occasion, not enough downtime, and just being like too big for my frame, all that became cumulative. And I ended up uh, seeing Dr. McGill in 2013 after my day to day life being impacted and my lift started regressing. Whoa, what's uh, the bad ego for, uh, who, like, what changed and took all the way, because, you know, with your statue back in the days, and still, but back in the day where you were injured, 
what what created that ego to just fade away and what was the 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 poisonous part of that because people should listen to that okay so the 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 ego is a good thing it's what helps you believe in yourself and push forward no matter no matter what because you know growing up if you if you tell people you want to do something you're going to have people all, always tearing it apart or saying you'll never do it. Mm -hmm. So you have to be headstrong enough to push ahead and believe in yourself. But at the same time, there's going to be roadblocks in your life that you're not going to be able to overcome on, uh, you know, on your own. So this was a turning point for me. You know, I'd always done my own training. I created my own philosophy, 1020 Life, which yeah. is my strength training philosophy. So I had a lot of experience. I've, I've worked with clients and trained clients all over the world. But I knew that I tried my own way with my back so many times. I was going to the doctor for spine epidurals and facet injections. I went through the physical therapy. I took time off. I tried the, the stretching that you see, the mobility work. Nothing had worked. And I was familiar with Dr. McGill's work. And what I did is I told myself that I tried every single avenue. And my ego was not so big that I knew. It wasn't so big that I couldn't take a step back and say, look, this is beyond my scope of expertise. Let's go to the best person in the world that knows far more about the back and injuries than I do. And let's yeah. turn everything over to him because you know what? I was at such a dead end that I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do this on my own. So I walked into Dr. McGill's clinic in 2013 as if I knew nothing. And I went over there and turned everything over to him 100% except for one thing. One, except for one thing. And I'll tell you that one thing in a moment if you'd like. Yes, I would. The only thing that I told him, because he did tell me that I'll be able to get you pain-free, um, but he wanted me to consider um, remembering what it's like to be pain-free day-to-day and enjoying my life again without the lifting. So he wanted me to, to regain this athleticism slowly uh, by following his, his instructions, but he wanted me to remember again what it's like to be pain-free, and he said if I were his son, he would urge me to retire from powerlifting to retain whatever athleticism that I'm able to regain mm -hmm. and, 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 and maintain it over time instead of going right back to the weights. And I said, well, my wife was with me and I looked at her and I looked at him and I said, well, I can tell you now, if I become healthy and pain-free, I'm going to return back to lifting. And he knew that this was a negotiation. We talk about it in the book, Gift of Injury. Um, that was the only time where I stood my ground and pushed back a little bit. And he relented and said, who knows, maybe you're right. Maybe we end up writing a book about it one day. And the rest is history. Like, because I've met uh, Dr. McGill, um, he's an amazing man. And before we go to, because I really enjoy the, the title and I read the book and literally from my point of view, I see what is a gift of injury. Uh, before we go through that, who is Stuart McGill? Dr. Stuart McGill is in a lot of people's minds and, 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 and you know, as far as, I'm concerned that it's the gospel. He's the authority on low back injury and recovery, and he's worked with the who's who in Major League Baseball. Uh, I'm sure he's worked with, with numerous soccer players. He's worked with the NBA, the NFL. He's worked with top-tier powerlifters, Olympic lifters, um, track and field athletes, just everybody. He's the guy when someone has come to a dead end with their back, and he's the guy that, that gets most people healthy. And... Um, an amazing been, man, really humble. Amazing. Amazing guy, amazingly humble, amazingly knowledgeable in every facet of athleticism. Exactly. And, of course, his specialty is, is the lower back, and that's what he dedicated 
33 years as a professor at the University of Waterloo studying. He has he had a lab clinic where one room he would do tests on uh, on on you know the medical side, and then on the other he had like a performance center, and then that's where I went in May of 2013. And I never looked back. I, I, I remember that obviously because it was an important part of my life. But I never looked back. It was all good things from there, and I learned so much. You know, in many ways, and I've said this many times, working with Dr. McGill and the things that were I had holes in my uh, in my coaching. I had holes in my lifting. I had a lot of areas that needed to be mended to make me a more a, a much more well-rounded coach, author, and athlete. And, and this kind of brought me full circle and made me much more complete in every way. So that's why the injury was a gift to me. It, it made me aware of so many things that I had missed, so many things that I had overlooked, or so many things that I just pushed to the side and ignored. So um, the, the injury was certainly a gift because I, I took the good and the bad and learned from it. And we all know, you know, with psychology, that generally we remember things very clear that are either very painful that hurt or things that are very good that make us very happy. Exactly. So this has obviously a lot of different uh, components there. It's kind of a mixed bag, but obviously I remember this, this, this whole path very, very uh, well. And my job now is to kind of help other people avoid what I've done. You know, so the gift of injury isn't just for people that have had a back injury. It obviously is for them, but it's not limited to just people that have a back injury. It's people that want to enhance athleticism. And most importantly, it's people that want to avoid the path that I went down. So best case scenario, you don't hurt your back like I did, and you retain your athleticism, and you never have to go down my path. That's what I wish for most people. And especially, you know, you're the man to know, because uh, I've got uh, L5-S1 uh, retrolysis from all the heavy lifting, and pain is something you don't want to have 24-7. No, it, it, you know, there's a psychological factors there, too, that... When you, when you start to have pain day-to-day, -day, it starts to wear on you mentally. And then we're not even talking about the aspect of you going to the gym and starting to have pain and you not being able to do what you love. That carries over into your personal life with your husband and your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your significant other. It starts to wear on them as well. Exactly. Everything is cumulative, good or bad. And that's one of the big messages that I, I try to talk to people. And people think that the, the small things don't matter. Oh, how I moved to pick up that paper towel I dropped or how I – Fill up the dog bowl with dog food. Doesn't matter. Everything is cumulative, good or bad. This is this isn't just my opinion. It's science. And exactly, that's a, that's that's a great point because usually people think that the method Dr. McGill uses and what you were talking about your book. Because I want to talk about the big three also how they it helped you because you always talk about the big three. Um, is that Dr. McGill talks about anti-flexion and that's a mechanism and basically. He says that, but in that, not the context that people think. And right. the mechanism can, you can, you know, flush, you can cough, you can bend, tie your shoes, you can feed your dog and it can fire up. It's not because you just flex at that point. It's because it's cumulative, as you said. So it's a bad mechanism, bad pattern that goes on and on. And that creates any degeneration or any problems in your lower back. Yeah. And a lot of people do like the pigeonhole McGill saying, he said, never to flex your back ever, never go into flexion. No, but a lot of the time it is your pain mechanism or your injury mechanism. You have other people that, that are trying for a totally different goal to be a gymnast or to try to be, I don't know, a ballerina or something totally different than powerlifting. They're going to have to get into flexion, and that's a totally different animal. But for the person that's trying to be strong and resilient, 
uh, you know, try to power lift or someone that does have a, uh, a history of, 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 of disc herniations or back pain caused by flexion, you're going to have to be aware that that is the mechanism for pain and you need to avoid that. So um, a lot of people do like to pigeonhole him and, and just take a little bit out of context and say, exactly. oh, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. Well, it just depends. It depends on your goal. No, you can't do that if you're trying to be a powerlifter or a strongman and that's your injury mechanism. You need to limit it. Limit it to competition, uh, not to, um, you know, day-to-day tasks that are going to use up all your athleticism. You know, we use the money, the money analogy because everyone immediately pays attention when you mention money. So you have withdrawals and deposits. If you don't make enough deposits in your bank account and you withdraw too much, you become bankrupt. You won't have money. You'll bounce checks. You know, people start calling your phone, asking you where their money is. It's the same thing with your body. If you don't make enough good athletic investments in your body, after a while, your body's going to flip you the middle finger and say, no more, I'm done, and it's going to rebel. Exactly. And that's really important because that's a good segue for 1020 Life. Yep. Your book. Yes. Um, And also, this can be transferred as a workshop or as a seminar, as I've seen you do, which is really helpful because people basically... Because powerlifting, for a great reason, has become really famous the couple of like the last five six years. Everybody wants to become a powerlifter, but if, just if you can bring me through the ten twenty life, which is a basically a non brainer protocol for how you can train for me, um, and also because I'm getting back from my injury now and I uh, feel good. What would be the 1020 uh, life. What is the 1020 life for you? So 1020 life, what it stands for is 10 and 20 weeks at a time for a lifetime of positive momentum in training and in life. And what it is, it's a, it's a custom protocol for anyone that wants to strength train. And specifically, if they want to power lift, it's all the better for them. But uh, it's not just limited to people that want to actually compete. You know, you mentioned how the barbell lifts have gotten really popular in the last five to six years. And uh, really, Strongman has come on really, really big in the last couple of years. Strongman has gotten very popular. So I think, in my opinion, the reason why that in Olympic lifting and powerlifting has gotten very popular, and that's due to CrossFit. Yes. CrossFit, and I'm not going to say anything good or bad about CrossFit, other than CrossFit has, bought, has brought to the mainstream the fact that just because you lift a barbell, it won't turn, if you're a woman, it won't turn you into a man. So now on the cover of magazines, you have people, you have very good-looking females squatting, benching, deadlifting, rowing, chinning, doing all the things that we've been saying to do forever. But now that CrossFit started having the, the ladies do it and they look fantastic. Great impact. Now, now you see them doing Olympic lifting, you see them do powerlifting, and then you really, lately you see them uh, doing a lot of strongman competing. So it's awesome to see this. So um, as, as the, the fad is kind of rolling in with the barbell lifts, a lot of people are getting into powerlifting and uh, so I, I created a system that's really helpful, you know, top to bottom. And uh, it's a sustainable approach. You know, it's not just about getting you strongest the fastest and then, you know, you being, uh, you know, all beat up and worn out in a couple of years. It's, it's all about a sustainable approach. And I have five major principles that we talk about in 1020 Life. And they're very simple. And, and this isn't just a template. To, this is how you should train. I give you the principles. I give you the parameters. I teach you how to be your own coach. I give you lifting cues. I give you programming cues. I give you ideas of what you should be programming for your different weak points. Because let's face it, if I give everyone a template that has the same assistance moves 
50% or so of the people will probably benefit from it, but another 25% will get an okay benefit, and the other 25 won't benefit at all. It needs to be custom to the person's leverages, injury history, and weak points. And that's the key to assistance work. It shouldn't just be a one-size-fits-all protocol. True. So I give people a weak point index in 1020 Life and basically point people in a very close direction of what they should be considering for their assistance work. That's awesome. So, and what I want to talk to you about is what you, when we first started, said I went to the gym one, two, three times. What would be a no, a no non-brainer training protocol? Yeah, so I would suggest people start off with about four days a week, uh, one major day that's going to cover the squat, one major day is going to cover the bench press and assistance work. Another day is going to cover the deadlift and its uh, subsequent assistance work. And then one day where you do like a touch-up, and I refer to it as a fluff and buff uh, protocol. And uh, that's where you move fast. It's more of a bodybuilding type um, training day that's only about 30 minutes long. And what you do is you take much less rest in between sets. But then that makes you uh, makes the, the lighter weights feel a little bit heavier and you have to work a little bit harder. You may hit some weak points that day. You know, uh, I like to use my fluff and buff as a touch-up day for my bench press day. So I do that bench press day on Monday, and then I do my fluff and buff day on Thursday. So I have plenty of time in between days to recover between my bench day and fluff and buff, and then turning around my fluff and buff and my uh, bench day that comes around the next week. So uh, again, you know, I give everyone a very good starting point. I give people parameters on how to progress. You know, I have uh, deloads that I suggest people start off considering every third week or so. That was my and next question about deload and recovery, yeah. Yeah, so deload is something that everyone right now is either really against or they're really for. And the science directly points to the, the necessary um, light weeks for adaptations to take place. So we all know that micro tears happen, micro fractures happen it's in the body. Treatment. That's how muscles grow, right? That's how, that's how um, you know, that's also how macro fractures happen in the spine when you have too, too much micro stimulation or micro fractures. They turn into macro fractures over time, and that's what happened to me. I didn't have enough rest in my training. I would go heavy too much. I didn't back off enough. And then, you know, occasionally I'd have loose form under load. Now, obviously, when you're lifting at 100%, you will get loose under load at times. So I'm not saying that you need to have. I'm not saying that one will have perfect form every time when maxing out. Mm -hmm. The problem is this. When everything becomes cumulative and your form is bad in the gym, you're asking for trouble. So what I like to do is have people stay ahead of the, of the wave instead of it crashing on them, ride the wave. So every three or four weeks, I have them back off, lower their volume, lower their, lower their intensity, work on singles with perfect form, practice uh, ingramming those perfect movement patterns because you know what? Here's what we know. We know that you're more likely to keep good form at 50% than you are 90%. So there's no such thing as making form perfect with 90 and 100%. So that's why we want to use light weights and perfect it. And then over time, you're more likely to have that ingrained on the brain that it's just going to be second nature to do and you're not going to have to think about it. So every third week is basically an evaluation week. True. And the, the, it's really important what you said about um – Remember when you said about the warm-up, which is 20 to 30 repetitions with a bar uh, or yep. with, with no bar regarding um, how you squat or how you bench or how you deadlift? Because people go straight and I'm not going to say either because I've been coaching CrossFit for five, six years and uh, I had my own, my own gym and the, the problem is assessment. 
Um, if yeah. if the person cannot squat with a, no bar, why would you load your your client or your athlete with a bar? That's like the basics of uh, training. Um, yes, and that's what why I really uh, enjoyed the the book because basically it's a, a non-brainer. Yes. It depends if you're an athlete because it's going to be totally different and if you're just starting into powerlifting or just lifts. And what would you recommend um, a typical um, training method or a training protocol, as we said, but for an athlete that has some time to step back and reschedule or because um, you went through pain and what I literally want to say, some people are like, no pain, no gain. And right. I, I'm not a big fan of that. I'm not either. So uh, what would I advise an athlete that's uh, right now injured? Yeah. So I would absolutely advise them to back off. They should see someone that's an expert in whatever it is that's ailing them, whether it be a knee, a shoulder, a back. You need to, you need to read everything that Dr. McGill's ever written if it concerns your back. Um, Eric Cressy's really good with the shoulder. Um, yeah, and there's, there's experts out there, right? There's experts all over. Um, so seek out the best in their field. Read their material. You know, I think one thing that, that may, um, this is just a guess, but I think a really good starting point, if you're going to seek out help from one of these experts, read their material first so you have somewhat of a baseline of understanding of what they're going to tell you because most likely you're going to need to read their information anyway to, to, to understand the context of what they're suggesting for you. So always uh, if you're going to reach out to one of these experts, be familiar with their material, not just out of respect, but for your own good, um, and, and, and back off. I always say err on the side of caution, and I'm not saying, you know, be scared of the weight or scared of training or scared of um, practice, but if something hurts you, that's your body's way of telling you, hey, this isn't right. You need to back off a little bit. You need to recover. Um, there's also a difference between being uh, – like really hurt and being a little dinged up. But I always suggest err on the side of caution. And if your back's hurting you, and this is something that Dr. McGill said to me specifically, you're not just going to overcome nerve pain. You're not just going to override it time after time again. If that nerve is going to get more and more sensitized, right? So it's like, I tell people this, and this, and this you know, this kind of has a, a couple different meanings here, but it, it applies here. So you have... You know, you have someone that has a stubbed big toe. They're always, the way they walk, their gait is causing them to stub their toe. And you want to, people want to treat the toe all the time. They want to give it injections. They want to wrap it up. They want to, you know, give it lidocaine and help it heal up. But if they don't change their gait, they're always going to pick that scab. And they're never, that toe's never going to heal up. So you have to assess the, the problem. And so that's what you need to do. You don't want to just keep training. You don't want to low dysfunction like you're talking about with someone not being able to do the bar properly. You don't want to slap, you know, 20 kilo plates on top of the already dysfunctional squat. You need to regress a lot of the time. And for the injured athlete, you need to regress. For that cross for that CrossFit athlete or that new person in powerlifting, you need to regress them back to a kettlebell squat or just an unloaded hip hinge and get that basic movement pattern ingrained and then you can progress forward. So I think people need to have if they get nothing else out of what I'm saying right now, Understand that regressions are for a purpose. A lot of the time, you need to take that one step back to go two steps forward. Exactly. And uh, the, 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 the thing sometimes I usually uh, say to some of my clients is, 
And that's why, because you you know about strength. Uh, you did a after your injury. I don't know how you did that. You did like uh, uh, 2,650 pounds, I think, 2017 in the Arnold, uh, uh, which was amazing. Regarding, I, I appreciate. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know what happened, uh, and I I don't know what's the plan for next year, because hopefully you've got something planned. Yeah. Uh, so. The, the, the thing about coming back from injury, and I just want to say this one little bit, is what I did, and I talk about this in Gift of Injury, and, I, and I've written a, written a couple articles on it on PowerRackStrength.com, but the person with the top t type A personality or the person that doesn't want to take time off, they have to change their thinking, okay? That same ego that's made them great also is what makes them hard-headed, okay? So what they have to do is they have to do a little bit of psychology, they have to think and say, okay, I'm going to take all this effort and all this tenacity and energy that I usually put into my training and my preparation. I got to take it back and put it into my rehab now. And I have to focus and understand that if I do too much, then it could actually be counter counterproductive at this time. So follow instructions, put all your effort in being perfect every day, and then harness that ener energy into motivation and getting 100% once again and then channel it to your competition or the field or whatever it is you have to do. But it takes you have to take a step back and be patient and unleash it when it's time. And, and the problem is a lot of people want to take three or four weeks off, and that's not a lot of that's not enough time for a lot of people. So you have to kind of rewire some things a little bit and understand there's going to be a time to unleash all this pent up aggression. But right now you need to focus and put it into rehab, getting better, being conscientious of what you're doing, the way you're moving. The little details of nutrition, the supplementation, you know, you're making sure you're, you're, um, you're mentally, you know, you might need to see counseling, you know, you might need to read some books. You might have to rewire some things and people don't understand that a, a, a physical injury does affect the psychological a lot, the psychological aspect of an athlete. So you have to be, uh, be ready and, and it depends on how bad you, how bad do you want it? And that's a cheesy thing to say, but how bad do you want to be healthy? Well, that means sometimes you have to back off. And what I always say is insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and waiting something to change. Um, yep. So by not changing a thing and keep on doing the same thing, it's not going to become any better. Yep, I totally agree, man. It, it, it takes a special person um, to be able to back off, give yourself permission, time to heal. And then when it's time, when you have that green light and when you get the thumbs up okay, then you harness patiently into progressions back to where you want to go. Regressions and progressions. Exactly. Um, regarding strength, just because uh, it's a myth about regarding you know big muscles being strength. Can you talk to me about how you literally got stronger with all the um, neuroadaptations and basically training your uh, nervous system regarding that? Not only after your injury, but I've seen a couple of videos with you and Dr. McGill, and I've seen some of your uh, of the things you talked on your book. And can you just tell me, because I know it's a big subject, but how can we become stronger uh, by basically uh, using our nervous system? Yeah, so uh, unleashing that beast on competition day is all about priming your body. It's not about going all out every single day in the gym. It's not about building the biggest muscles you can build because we see a lot of bodybuilders that are way bigger 
and look a lot bigger than the top powerlifters in the world, but they would obviously not beat them in a powerlifting meet. Now, Ronnie Coleman or Stan Efferding are exceptions to that rule. We don't take we don't take the point one percent and and make it the rule. That's the exception to the rule, and you have exceptions across the board everywhere. But we as powerlifters, it's not just about the biggest muscle. It's not just about the biggest guy. It's about leverages. It's about speed. It's about you know prepping the body to be the strongest on competition day. And there's a lot of different tricks that we use. We you know we utilize speed work whenever we find that there's a um, you know a lack of explosiveness out of the bottom of a lift. We'll we'll work speed. We'll work different lifts out of um, disad you know non-advantageous positions, whether it be a rack pull or a squat in the bottom, like what they call that an Anderson squat right now. There's a lot of different ways to attack it. Um, there's also something that we do called reverse bands or the lighten method, where basically you ha hang bands from top of a rack, whether you're bench pressing, squatting, or deadlifting, and you, um, as the weight comes down in the hole in the bottom of the lift, it gets lighter, yeah. and then as the, the lift turns around, the weight gets heavier. So this teaches someone to grind and explode. Same and, thing uh, with you know, blocks we used to, you know, like 10 years ago, we used to re re retract all the, the blocks we had just to yeah. find strength in all our, the, the, the angles of our muscle. Oh, the board presses are still a staple in mind for bench press. Yes. So depending on where you're weak is where you need to work. So if, you're if you really struggle the last three or four inches on a bench press, then you want to work, you know, uh, where you have three or four two-by-fours on your chest. You can move your grip in to make the stroke even longer. You have to press further. And then when it's time in competition, when you move your hands back out, then it's going to be a way better stroke for you because you've been used to pressing it so far. You've been working in that area where you're kind of weak or lack a bit. Um, so we have all kinds of different uh, tricks and, and, and ways we approach it. Uh, there's, there's another thing that you got to consider, too. When you're comparing bodybuilding to powerlifting and, and, the, and the powerlifter being, you know, um, it's all about the go. You know, bodybuilders, some people say, and a lot of them are, all show and no go. All that matters on meat day is how much you lift. So a lot of the time, you can have someone put on a bunch of muscle in a bodybuilding type training approach and it not carry over at all on the powerlifting platform. So it isn't just about, uh, you know, having muscle you know, in places that may or may not carry over. It's about the complete package. And we do know that powerlifting is about weight classes. Sure. So if you're only going to gain 10 pounds on your bench press, but you gain 20 pounds of body weight, that's not a very good trade-off. So again, it's so much about the, the, the neural preparation. It's about being able to summon that strength in one rep. It's about wrapping your mind about harnessing all that power into one perfect rep Whereas a bodybuilder, they're slower, more grindy, squeezing for 10, 15, 20 reps. There's no sense of urgency with each rep. There's no mental preparation for execution. One rep, kill it, and then you're done. It's like a, a beast that you turn off for one rep. And this is what you practice. And, you know, uh, you talked about the videos on YouTube with the neuromuscular priming. A nice bark, a yell, or a stomp wakes up the, neuro the, the neurological system, and it gets you into a fight or flight mode. So That's I'm not saying, yeah, and you practice this in training. You don't want to just say, okay, here I am going for my biggest lift ever in a competition and say, hey, guy, hit me. No, you need to be, you know, you need to understand that some people may not respond well to being hit. It may take them away from their focus or it may make them mad and really focused. So this is something that you experiment with 
And you know what? And one of the key principles that, that I talk about over and over in 1020 Life is you train the way you compete. So if you're, if you're really trying important. to compete in powerlifting, when you're peaking for that meet, you need to have everything that you can control under control and as close to the meet setting as possible. So if you like to get a slap for your big lift to help you get in the zone, then you need to get that slap by that same person. If you like to be left alone and not talk to and you have earbuds in your ears, then that's what you do in practice and in competition. So there's none of this dancing up to the bar and, and trying to trying to smile while you're lifting because we talk about in Gift of Injury that smiling takes away from the, um, the drive of the neural density, right? Yeah. So it, it, it takes muscles to, to smile that you're taking away and it, it takes uh, brain power away from what you're trying to do if you're smiling. So um, if you're trying to summon absolute 100% power, you cannot afford to give any away to smiling. <laughs> you can smile after when you win. <laughs> smile. Winning is fun. Training to a lot of people is not fun. I don't know if you've seen the uh, Netflix documentary with Hussein Bolt. Yes. Okay. Did you see how he, how much he struggled towards the end of his career to stay focused and train? And uh, you saw that he got injured, you know, playing around at the bar. Yeah. And he was kind of for a while questioning whether he wanted it bad enough because he wanted to be a normal dude. He wanted to get back to having a life and not being this, you know, this guy Machine. that has so much pressure on his on his on his shoulders. And uh, but at the end of the day, Justin Gatlin pissed him off enough where he said, "I don't care what I have to do." I want to win. And that's what he, that's what kept his eye on the prize at the end because he hated the process. I don't think anyone could come away from that documentary and say he really enjoyed his training the last two years of his career. No, if he did, that wasn't training. Right. And that's why I always say one is that documentary with Usain Bolt and the other one is Pumping Iron. When people ask me how to train, I'm like, watch that movie because it's not all about, you know, uh, butterflies, rainbows, and unicorns. It's tough. And you know it better. Training is tough. And uh, you've got to embrace the process. I don't want to say you have to always enjoy it because it's pretty brutal, especially when, you, again, like I talked about earlier, the process of coming back from a severe injury, is that's not fun. But you learn to embrace it because you learn so much you know, in, in, during the process. You learn a lot about yourself mentally and physically, what you can overcome. You get harder, you get more tough, you get mentally stronger during that time. Um, but it's not always uh, smiles and rainbows, man. There's a lot of a lot of tough stuff you have to deal. Even when you're very successful, you have to continually put in that work. And as the bar raises, so do the expectations of the people around you. And um, you've got to always get better. And even if it's just a half a percent with your form, or you know, a, a little fraction of a percent. With, uh, with your mental game, everything has to evolve and move forward. Otherwise, you will regress. And with regression, sometimes injury comes with that. So you always want to control what you can control. When you're top level, I think it becomes you know, more and more stressful as you're up there. Because you, either you want to keep it and then you know, you're always... And that's my other question regarding um, the stress of the injury. If you have it in mind or it's just something way back that you don't think about it anymore. I always, I will, I will never forget where I, where I came from, how broken I was, you know, mentally and physically, and just so many dead ends on my own, you know, of trying to find a cure. So in that respect, I'll never forget. But when I get under the bar, the, the, the injury, 
my, I feel my form is so locked in. It is so ideal for my, for my build, for my injury history that I turn it on so hard that the injury is just a, a, a past, a past hurdle that I've been through, but I don't ever take a weight lightly. Every single weight that I take from the bar to a thousand pounds or 1100 pounds or whatever it is I'm taking that day, I treat every weight the same. And that was one of my big problems that I didn't do prior to meeting Dr. McGill. And it was evident when we started working in the lab clinic today, after we went over my scans, you know, this was after you told me I had a fractured sacrum, I had no disc at L4, L5, or a disc at L5, S1. It was completely obliterated. So after him telling me this, he said, you can't afford to be lackadaisical anymore and lazy. So as I was setting up to, to, to deadlift a 45-pound bar, I was loose. I wasn't taking it serious. I was looking at him, you know, trying to have a conversation with him while I was doing it. And right then he corrected me and said, Brian, if you ever want a chance to be able to return back to the platform, you've got to treat every weight as if it's a max lift, whether it's 20 pounds or 2,000 pounds. And that is the, that is the biggest thing that's changed my, my approach in the last four and a half years. That's awesome, and that's why we know it's a, a gift, as you yes. said. Um, a lot of things, a lot of things I missed, you know, and that's a big thing that made me a very incomplete lifter and coach. Yeah, and uh, it's exactly you're lucky because you had a really good mentor when you were 16, 17, uh, and then after your injury, you had another mentor that helped you to become more, uh, to more mature coach. Because basically, uh, all, whatever happens in our training life, in our, you know, in our uh, secret life it's what makes us what we are today huh yes yes again we keep coming back to this but everything is cumulative good or bad and we're, we're a makeup you know of what we've been doing for the last you know 36 years and um man some choices we make are, are very bad and they come back to get us and then it's also nice to see when we make good choices and improve as a person and we we reap the rewards for that true that's uh, and that's the awesome part because that's why I enjoyed uh, Bre uh, Brett Bartholomew's book about conscious coaching because he said the aspect that nobody said about arguing uh, the psychology aspect of an athlete and of the psychology part of a coach, which is really important to combine everything with that aspect too. And you're saying because uh, you said about counseling after an injury and all this, and people take that lightly, and I think they should. You know, think about it more. If, if they don't want to, you can just read a book. They can do a lot of things regarding that. You can get help. Um, yeah, so Brett's, Brett's subtitle is The um, the Art of Buy-In or something like that. And I haven't read the book, but I want to read the book. And I've heard nothing but awesome things. Is it something you're reading? Yeah, it's, uh, okay. um, he, he's done amazing work. And the good thing is he, he had also lots of uh, difficulties. And that's why this book came out. And that's why, um, like you, that's the important part of a person when he goes through a really tough time and he puts it out. So people see it as a, you know, as a beacon that they can avoid any bad uh, situations. And I yep. really thank you for that because I had the problem with my injury. I thought everything was over. Um, and after meeting the story McGill and after reading your book, you know, everything's becoming better for me to start getting back on my training. And it all starts in the mind. Yes. It's like every, every, every muscular movement starts in the brain, you know, exactly. every, everything starts there quick. And you talked about, you know, one of the differences between, you know, a bodybuilder and a power lifter that are summoning that strength into one lift. It all starts right here.
Exactly. Mentally, one lift, one lift, and you're done. Killer instinct, and you go and get it. Everything starts in the mind. So, um, surrounding yourself with positive people, reading good material like Brett's book, like Stu and I's book, uh, me and Stu's book. It, at the end of the day, it's you. You are who you surround yourself with. That's really awesome. And um, just to, I know how you're busy. I just want to uh, ask regarding training um, before we go about. Tell me about uh, power rack strength and the the future plans. Is first of all is um, I don't want to say intensity, but I want to say volume first. Are you a big fan of volume? Uh, are you uh, uh, both intensity and volume? Are you more regarding just plain training? What's your what's your uh, take on that? Good question. So okay, so. I talked earlier about the five main principles that I that I hit on with my book. Phases of training, which is going to answer that question. A comprehensive and proper warm-up. You know, every, every person's warm-up is going to be similar, but it's going to be different depending on their injury history, their needs, what they're doing that day, you know, et cetera, so on and so forth. Um, form is a huge component. That's one big part of 1020 Life is having good form, especially knowing what I've been through and, yeah. and you know, locking in form. Form is something you can control. Whether you're predisposed to be very strong or not is something you can't really control. You can get stronger, so don't don't say, don't think that I'm saying you can't get stronger. But you can work on form no matter who you are. You can have really good technique no matter if you squat 90 pounds or 990 pounds, right? You can control your form within reason. You say that a lot so in I'm, your book, and also about the uh, the, the burnout com uh, component from that. Yep, and then philosophy and mindset. Being an athlete 24/7, of course. The weak point uh, work that we talked about earlier, having assistance work that's catering that caters to attacking your weak points and, and it, it will complement your needs. You know, help you help you uh, you know do what you're poor at and get better at it. So, um, as far as an intensity and volume, I like to start middle of the road. And depending on where you are in training, the first principle is having phases of training. So if you're in an off season type setting or you're training as an athlete, not trying to power lift and you just want to get stronger. I suggest that you have more volume and you work less intensity. So what I have people do is work off RPE, and, and people have different interpretations of it. It's basically the rate rate of perceived exertion or effort. Again, a lot of people have different ways of putting it. But I like to run off a scale of 5 through 10. And so you go to the doctor and they ask you, what is your pain today? Oh, uh, you know, it's not that bad. It's pretty moderate. It's like a 5. Well, if it starts getting a little more serious, it's like a seven or an eight. And then if you're really, really hurting and you need to go to the ER, you need medicine right away, it's more like a nine or ten, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So, again, there's a big difference between a five and a ten and, of course, seven somewhere in the middle. So I always suggest people start and, and have their lion's share of their work in the offseason around a six or a seven RPE. So, again, for some people it's going to be hard to kind of determine. It's going to be a work in progress for them. But I like to have people work in the off-season um, off RPE because things are going to change a lot. If you're a competitive powerlifter for the off-season, you're going to travel more. You're going to be doing the things that you're going to try to avoid doing when you're peaking for a competition, like whether it be vacation in Jamaica or you're going to get married or you're going to have a kid, right? So there's a lot of different things that if you're trying to be a somewhat balanced powerlifter, you'll try to take care of these things in the off-season. So, for instance, me and my wife are getting ready to go to North Carolina in the mountains awesome. to have a vacation. Well, ideally, I wouldn't do this two weeks before my competition, right? Sure. So, I'm doing this now when I'm more flexible in training. Maybe I go to the, a gym that's really good in North Carolina, 
Maybe I go to one that's terrible, and what feels like 700 pounds actually feels like 1,000 pounds. So this is a way to scale it on the way the effort feels for that day. So what you go off for RPE is what you're capable of that day. Biofeedback. So so, yes. So maybe some days a 10 for me is 1,200 pounds. Maybe some days when I'm traveling and I'm a little hungover, it might be 1,000 pounds. That's a big fluctuation of 20% or whatever it ends up being that a normal person will have day-to-day depending on stressors in their life. Maybe they're a little beat up. Maybe they're tired. Maybe they're depressed. There's, there's a lot of things that, that go along with that. So in an off-season type setting, I advise them to work on a lower intensity, higher volume, attack your weak points. And then when they're peaking for competition, as I illustrate in 1020 Live, uh, I would work off percentages of your best lift. And then you're going to work lower reps, lower volume, higher intensity. So for off-season, it might be reps, sets of five, four, and three, and then pre-contest would be sets of three, two, and one. And again, it's going to ride the wave with the deloads every third week, and it's going to taper uh, somewhere in the middle of the pre-contest, and then you're going to kind of coast in by taking a couple around 90% and then going to the meet, hopefully carrying over that positive momentum and that CNS stimulation that you've built up to peak on that meet day. Yeah, you say that a lot in your book on the second, third uh, chapter, basically, regarding that. Um, nutrition, how yeah. the important part, the supplements, um, if you could put it in a, in a pyramid, structurally, how would you uh, approach that? Ooh, that's a, really a great question. Big subject. Yeah, that. that's, a, that's, a, <laughs> that's a good question. Okay, so here's where I'll, I'll give you my best answer on that. It's going to depend on a lot of your genetics, right? Some people can get away with eating like garbage, right? And they look great. You're like, oh, I, I hate you. <laughs> you know, they're walking around after being at the bar all weekend or at the beach and they look like they literally just left the gym. But what you don't know is they did drugs all night, they drank all night and they still haven't eaten for two days and they just look better than you. There's some things that you just kind of shake your head at and just wonder why you weren't gifted more, right? Well, after a while, that same person that's been getting away with it will not be able to get away with it like that. So for some things that seem like a blessing to, to certain people, it may not be. That might be a hard gainer that can never get strong enough or put on the size that you've been able to do your whole life. So I think nutrition is important. And, uh, you know, vitamins and supplements are very controversial now. You have studies coming out all the time where yeah. people say, oh, BCAs are useless. BCAs do have some use. Protein, whey protein is good, no casein hydrosylate. It's always back and forth. Uh, and then you have some people that say a multivitamin is actually counterproductive. I don't know. What I do know is I like to take a high-quality multivitamin. I take, I take one called Primer. It's made by Magnum. It's a very good uh, quality uh, multivitamin a day. I'll supplement some extra fish oil, four or five grams a day. I'll take some vitamin C. I'll take some D12. But... I've never come back deficient in any of my vitamins. I get blood work every six months. Uh, my blood work is very good, fortunately. Um, so I can't say for sure that I actually need these vitamins that I take, but I do that to cover my bases because I, I wouldn't consider myself an average Joe. No. So I, I, I've driven my body to, to great lengths that the average person would never do. So I, I feel like I need more of certain things. You know, Like I said, the vitamin C because... You know, I push my body, I'm more likely to get sick, you know, so that's good yeah. to, to, to boost immunity. 
The D12 basically helps everything function in your body according to a lot of research. Yes. And of course, the multivitamin, the fish oil for the good fats and the, the joint health and you know the heart health and all that stuff. But um, as far as making a pyramid, I wouldn't be able to do that with a good conscience because I, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly um, how this should look because it's so controversial. I do know that good nutrition is important. If you eat a very high uh, in, inflammatory diet where you eat nothing but junk food, eventually your body's going to say, you know, screw you. Your joints are going to hurt. Your bad cholesterol is going to go through the roof. Your good cholesterol is going to suffer. You might end up having some heart disease if you eat really bad. Um, but what I advise everyone do, if they're very serious about performance, is eat what you need within reason. So I'm not going to say you need all carbohydrates or all fat or a ton of protein. I only eat, and it's been this way and very consistent throughout my athletic, uh, if you want to call it athletic, you know, career being a powerlifter. It, you know, it gets, gets depends on who you ask, right? <laughs> I've never eaten over 200, mil 200 grams of protein consistently ever in, in 20 years. I've never done it. I've never bought into the fact that, oh, you need X amount per grant per per pound of lean body mass or et cetera. This, you know, you've, you've seen studies all the time. You can't assimilate this much protein at a time. You can't take in this much protein per day. Your body, you know, doesn't use it this way. It uses it that way. And, you know, some of the latest research shows an insulin spike with too much protein. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't really, <laughs> sometimes you just kind of <laughs> wonder what the hell is good for yeah. you, right? Because you can so, read a paper that says amazing things, then you read another one, and then you read another one. Regarding protein, like in uh, in Florida, there's this amazing man and an amazing professor and a friend, uh, Dr. Jose Antonio, uh, yeah. who did a lot of work regarding that. What he always says is like, like he's a big fan of protein, and we all are, but he says like, because people thought, you know, bone density goes down, you might have problems in your kidneys, whatever, but he did that in a longitudinal study that came out a couple, uh, six, seven months ago. And say no, this cannot happen. But also, you cannot follow RDA, which is like zero point eight per per kilo, or whatever. Just keep right. it balanced regarding your all day uh, training and living, as you said. Yeah. So I, I sum it up like this: like diet and supplementation, it's akin to training. You need just enough. How much is enough? It depends. Have a baseline where you start somewhere, just like with your diet, just like with your training, your volume, your intensity. Your sets and reps start somewhere. If it's working for you, don't change it. And then if it's too much, you show signs of, you know, um, you know, you're getting fatter or bloated or overtrained. That would mean you need to scale back. You know, maybe your carbs are fat a little bit. Scale back your volume and training, and then adjust from there. So don't just change everything and throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> little changes, little changes over time, I think is what makes, uh, you know, someone have the ability to have longevity in sport it isn't just changing we see people all the time i'm doing this program i'm doing this diet i'm working with this coach i'm following this method and they never make progress because they're not consistent because, yes so it isn't always just about having the perfect diet or running 10 20 live or getting with the perfect doctor a lot of the time it's just not changing everything at once it's just giving it enough time to work or not, and then making small adjustments. Excellent point. Excellent point. Thank you for that. Um, power rack strength. Yeah. Tell me about it. So power rack strength is something I started three and a half years ago. It's, it's a website for all things strength 
and uh, athletic resilience. So we, what we what we're doing is we basically showcase athletes on power X strength that utilize the 1020 methodology. Again, it's a philosophy. It's not a dogma. It's not you know a set of rules where you have to do this. It's an ever growing philosophy like Westside Westside conjugate method. It's always growing. It's ever changing. Right? There's certain things I don't advise people to do mm-hmm. just from my own experience. I, I would. I would not. I would never advise. I can tell you a couple, you know, for sure things I wouldn't do. But besides this, it's really open to interpretation within reason. I would never advise someone to do weighted sit-ups over a plank version, right? Just something I wouldn't do. Yeah. I would. Ne- I would. Uh, yeah. I would never advise someone to do um, a, 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 a rounded back good morning over some kind of a row or some kind of a block deadlift. It's just from my experience, risk reward, right? Everything has to be. Um, worth the risk, right? For the reward, if it's exactly. if it's minimal gain for Why maximum you risk, it, you're, you're not really you're not really thinking things through. So it's all about risk reward. And again, it's it's coined from a movie. You know, it's been used many times. The juice has to be worth the squeeze, right? Yeah. And from from Florida, Florida oranges. If you're if you're taking five minutes squeezing on an orange and you're only getting you know a couple tablespoons or a couple ounces of, of liquid, it's not worth it. Move on to something else, right? So at the end of the day, it has to be worth the squeeze. So we have uh, basically a bunch of walking, talking, logging testimonials on PowerActionStrength.com of bodybuilders, of power builders, marathon runners, endurance athletes, um, you name it on the website, strength and conditioning coaches, and then now strongmen that all utilize the 1020 Life philosophy in their own training, in their own endeavors, in their own gym, and their own clients. And it's a way for me to write articles that coincide and talk about the, the methods and expand the expansions of it and such. And then it's a place for people to pick up the 1020 Life book, Gift of Injury, and read about you know the, the newest uh, content that we're putting out there. And uh, 2018, we're, we're giving uh, Power X Strength right now a, a, a nice facelift. It's going to be so much easier to use. It's grown so fast that I've been so busy creating 1020 Life um, writing gift of injury, working on power building for 1020 life that my marketing has suffered. You know, my avenues of selling these things have suffered. So now that I'm, we've released gift of injury and I have a little bit of time, we're going to make power X strength so much more comprehensive and easy to use. So I can't wait for everyone to check it out and, and see the Facebook for giving it. And we've added another strong man to the site and another strength and conditioning coach. So really we're going to be all things strength, with resilience uh, in 2018, and I'm really looking forward to, to getting out there and doing seminars abroad. We've got a, a few scheduled already this year, and I had a hell of a one with Craig Levinson that we yeah, did. Yeah, so post on Instagram. Loved it, man. We're working with clinicians, chiropractors, physical therapists, professional strength and conditioning coaches with big league teams. I mean, hey, this thing is getting a lot bigger than just some powerliftings. So. I can't wait to, to help as many people as I can with my story and with the, my ever ever growing knowledge and the people I surround myself with. So, what's the plan for uh, regarding your seminars and workshops? What, what people are going to see there? What people are going to basically learn? I'm, I'm planning to bring you to UK and Greece. So, just yeah, I, I can't wait to do it. So, so what I like to do is I like to give people you know the five basic principles of 1020 Life. Well, I'll discuss why you should have phases of training. Uh, we go through a uh, hands-on and a PowerPoint of a comprehensive. We have four bullet points that we, we want to check off our list every single day. 
The first part is breaking a sweat. And if you're not breaking a sweat before you get into the bar, you're asking to be injured. Yeah. Second part, of course, is the McGill Big Three, which is, you know, it's a stable. It's a staple in, in, in all of my programming. It's the bird dog. It's the rolling plank. And it's the McGill curl up. It's it's the it's one of the biggest things that, that helps stabilize my back. And it's what I suggest everyone do uh, every single day, no matter if they have back pain or not. It can, it can really be a life changer for so many people. And the way McGill puts it, it's a three-pronged stability, core stability system, right? Non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. You need to be doing it every day. Exactly. Uh, so we'll be covering the warm-up and, and how to do that, you know. Uh, you know, the second part being the McGill Big Three, the third part being a specialized movement for the day. Again, not everyone's going to need direct hip work before they get under the bar. Some people are going to have good hips, breaking a sweat, McGill Big Three, and then getting under the bar, which is the fourth part, will be fine for them. They may need to warm up their shoulders a little bit due to some achy, you know, achy, you know, shoulders or tendonitis in their forearms or, or whatever it may be. So the, the third part is just a specialized movement for the day to get them ready for squats, benches, or deadlifts or whatever they're doing that day. And again, like I said, the fourth part is just getting under an empty bar before you load it and doing 10, 20, 30, 40 reps, grease the groove, and then get ready for the work that's to come. Because if you can't do a perfect rep with an empty bar, you should not expect anything different when you start loading 20 kilos, you know, 50 kilos on the bar. There, there's really no reason to do that. So in the seminars, we're going to be covering, you know, hands-on portion of that, just describing why you should be warming up properly. We're going to be covering the hands-on portion of the form very thoroughly, breaking down the squat, bench, and deadlift. And then important is to remember the assistance work that is derived to, bend, to build your squat, bench, and deadlift will be addressed as well in both the hands-on and PowerPoint uh, portion of a seminar where we talk about wherever, where you miss and what your weak points are will uh, decide what assistance work you're going to do. And I'm going to show you how I go about doing that. And basically, I'm going to teach you to be your own coach just like I do at 1020 Life. And then, of course, probably the most important part, and this is mostly lecture, is being an athlete 24-7, the, the philosophy and mindset of being an athlete of all times, the way you move, not missing lifts and training, always erring on the side of caution, just knowing the difference between being scared and being smart. Um, there's huge differences, and so uh, I teach you how to. Really yeah, important. so I te- absolutely. So I teach you how to be your own. Uh, you know, I give you safeguards to help protect yourself, and we have a uh, you know a nice seminar where we do plenty of hands-on. And we have a nice, nice back and forth between the practical and lecture part. So I keep you entertained, and uh, we cover a lot to make you, uh, uh, you know, a much better—not uh, powerlifter necessary, but uh, necessarily—but a strength athlete or a strength coach or just someone who's going to be a lot more uh, thoroughly versed in the squat, bench, and deadlift, and a lot of the components that go along with that. Okay, that's really, really awesome. And I saw the feedback from the seminar you did uh, with uh, Liebenson, and everybody was. So excited. I'm looking forward oh. to it. So, Oh, I can't wait. You know, I'm, I'm doing a seminar in Chicago and uh, in May, it looks like. I'm doing one in Connecticut in uh, February. And, uh, hell, we might end up setting up a couple more uh, besides Greece and the U.K. Uh, with some of our, our, our other allies. So we're, I'm lo- really looking forward to this. And Me too, man. Me too. A- a- again, it's, it's not just um, a... It's not just something very cool that I can go and, and just share my story, but to me, it's kind of a, an obligation on my shoulders to go out there and help other people. So 
I enjoy doing it, but I think that if I don't spread this knowledge, I think I'm doing a lot of people a disservice. So I'm highly motivated to go out and share my story, talk about my work with Dr. McGill, how I came about 1020 Life, how I beat my back injury, and then some basic, you know, easily, um, easily, easily, easily applicable principles to take home and break down right away. That's awesome. That's really it. I'm going to put all the links regarding your books and your website uh, under the thread I'm going to create the video on. And people can find you on Instagram, Facebook, and on your webpage. And hopefully you will have uh, the seminar that we're trying to uh, create. Absolutely. I can't wait, man. Thank you so much, man. I love what you're doing with Bros Do Science. Uh, I can't wait to uh, to showcase the new Power Act strength and the to get out there and do these seminars and anything you need to me, just let me know, okay? Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure. Thank you. All right, have a good one. You too.